This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Excuse me. How will the return to school affect Zoomers? We've already talked about the possible impact on the ability to see children and grandchildren, but what about their careers? We have anecdotal evidence that more teachers are retiring this year because of the pandemic, and that is likely happening across other professions as well. Uh, Let's hear from you. What do you think? 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's bring in our own demographic guru, who is also the father of a teacher, David Kravit, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. Hi, David. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, well, thank you for calling in from your holiday. No problem. Uh, so, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, I haven't been able to get the various authorities to come up with some numbers, but anecdotally, more people are retiring this year, as far as we know. It's true. It's true. Uh, in an average year, just to get you some benchmarks, so there's 128,000 teachers in Ontario, elementary and secondary, about 4,500 retire in an average year. And um, it's true that more are going to retire this year. I think it's partly COVID, but I also think that the response to COVID has created an environment where it's very difficult for the teachers to pin down exactly what's going to happen. Uh, each school is a little bit different. The instructions about class sizes and uh, safety measures were late and very fragmented. So there's a lot of uncertainty Um how is it going to work? How many kids are in my class? I Most of the time, they don't even know how many kids are in the class yet. And a huge number of teachers have not yet had their employment confirmed. And there's talk about um, adding more, you know, substitute teachers and occasional teachers. And if you want to talk about um, health risks from that, of a teacher going to multiple schools during the course of a week, that hasn't even been discussed yet. There's a lot of anxiety about that because I'm moving from environment to environment, and who knows how safe each school is. So, it's you know, frankly, it's a bit of a hot mess, and I, I don't know, uh, you know, how they could have handled it better, but it is certainly exacerbating this idea that maybe this is the year I should pack it in. And then, I know you're going to want to talk about this, we have the whole other phenomenon about would I be safer collecting a fee for teaching a, a private pod, because that's also becoming a little... Well, it's interesting. I'm looking at the time. So the Ontario government, we we just had an announcement of of, uh, another $200 million from the federal government. And just a few minutes before air, we got a little bit of a breakdown from the government. So obviously, they had a heads up about this. And um, they it shows 70 million for the temporary hiring of educators as required which I guess is good in terms of reducing class sizes, but you make a very interesting point. Are they going to mandate that that uh, these people can only work in one school at a time? 
Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's the normal system. If you look at if you look at the what they call LTL long term occasional teachers, and you have to start to get hired by a board. In your first year, you have to be a substitute teacher, and then you go up the food chain to a long-term occasional, and then finally you're eligible to be hired permanently. So they, uh, the substitute teachers, are um, are going from school to school, not necessarily on the same day. They may work at one school for a couple of days. They may they may switch every day. They basically log in every day to see what's available, and they claim they claim a position or not. And some of them you know, manage a smaller list of schools or have kind of informal arrangements, but it's all over the map. And I'm in a normal time, that would be fine. But um, how are you going to keep them from, um, how are you going to decree that they can only work at one school? And uh, then they become a long-term occasional teacher, you get into the whole union and, and contract classifications. It's very complex. I'm not necessarily blaming the, the system, but it's incredibly complex. The COVID is not something that is easily managed within the uh, labyrinthine regulations and hiring practices of, uh, of uh, the public school system. What are the implications of this for the Zoomer generation? I mean, are, are, are a lot of people in a position where really they're going to be leaving the workforce sooner than they want to? Well, yes and no. So there's there's really, um, and again, I, this is another one of these topics, and we've seen it before with other topics, where the cohort is so huge, the, the sheer number of people, that a number of different scenarios coexist. So scenario one is, no, it's going to actually delay retirement, because people's portfolios took a hit, and they've got to keep working, they've got to keep the money coming in, there's some evidence for that, and we know already, even without COVID, that the the baby boomer or the older part of the Zoomer cohort is staying in the labor force longer than anybody in you know previous generations. Wait so, a minute, the stock market's been very good lately. I understand that, but but it went down first. I got scared. Um, I need more money, and in any case, even without COVID, um, you know, 1998. I've got the numbers here. 18 percent of the 65 to 74 group were in the labor force. Ten years later, up to 25 percent. Ten years later, about 29 percent, and projected for 2028, um, over 33 percent. So they're staying in longer anyway. Um, and then not everybody, you know, benefited from the stock market. I guess so. That's that's one group. The second group, you're quite right. Yikes! What do I need all this for? I'm afraid to go back. I'm in the most vulnerable. Uh, sector for infection and fatality anyway, by definition, maybe this is a good time for me to, uh, you know, to pull back. So I think both trends are going to happen depending on the industry. Now, when teaching, you know, which we started with, is they've always had um, a larger-than-average group retiring because their pension plan is very rewarding compared to many others. And... uh, you can actually retire, you know, in your 50s, depending on how long you've been teaching, and get a, a you know, all of your best, uh, the average of your best five years, and they reach this friction point, you know, is it worth it for me to work one more year uh, where I could get, you know, maybe three-quarters of what I used to get paid without working? And my daughter, actually, uh, she'll, we were talking about this, and she says she knows numerous people that, 
this is the year I'm finally going to retire, and then they kind of don't, and then they kind of finally do. So the retirement rate for teachers is a little higher than the average population because they have that good pension, because many of them feel they can still work part-time or they can go into some other, you know, it's not uncommon for them to have a second career and get out in their 50s even. So uh, that's another factor is how good is your pension. Well, theirs yeah, is, I mean, is very good. They're, they're in good shape, but I, I was reading that it, the average age used to be for people in their 50s, and it's now, it had risen to 61 point something. But uh, we'll have to see how this is affected because, you know, I, the formula is if your years of service and your age add up to 85, you're yes. golden. Well, that means that your pension isn't, your pension's not reduced and your pension is 2% of uh, times your number, times your best years, so your five best years, so you are golden. But now let's suppose that I, let's suppose, and there's an example right on the teacher's website I looked at this morning, you're 53 years old, you've been teaching for 30 years, I guess in their model you came out of teacher's college and started teaching right away, so you're, you, you've blown past 85. Your number is eighty or near it, and so you and your best years were eighty thousand dollars. So your pension is going to be fifty one thousand. If I can make fifty one thousand for not teaching, uh, I'm taking a thirty thousand dollar hit. But then again, I'm retired. But I'm I'm only fifty three in their example. You know, I only need to bring in thirty grand more to make what I was making full time teaching. Then that second job becomes quite possible. And now look at COVID. Um, Maybe I'll teach a pod. Maybe I'll become a tutor. Maybe I'll uh, do online coaching. Um, there's a whole bunch of education-related um, occupations that are opening up as a result of COVID and Zoom and that whole phenomenon. Uh, do you see? Um, we only have a few seconds left. Uh, just uh, as we were, do you see this as a kind of uh, dangerous trend for the demographic, or you know, stuff happens. I think I think if I look at the demographic as a whole, I'd say stuff happens and uh, boomers and Zoomers are very resilient and very adaptive. And I think more people are going to be gravitating towards finding the opportunity than uh, fleeing in terror. Okay. David Kravitz, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Libby. Take care. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is in town and the return to school is also on his mind. He says any federal money given to the provinces for schools should come with explicit plans to address school safety, including mandating smaller class sizes. And there are a lot of other things to discuss with him. The election of a new Conservative Party leader, the extension of emergency benefits and the prospect of a fall election. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins me now. Welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay, well, great. Now, first of all, let us turn to the issue of school. The Prime Minister was very clear that he wasn't going to tread on provincial jurisdiction and he wasn't going to tell the provinces what to do with this money. What do you think of that? Well, I think that it's absolutely clear that the jurisdiction is is provincial, but what we know is that parents and education experts are making it really clear that money should go towards small classroom sizes. So the federal government should make sure that the money actually goes to making schools safer and that the money is tied directly to the safety of kids. 
and that experts are the ones that are helping to guide that decision and what they're asking for is smaller classroom sizes. Well, do you think that there's this stand might have anything to do with the fact that, say, here in Ontario, uh, the Liberal government is getting along very well with the uh, progressive conservative Doug Ford government. He said he's not even going to be campaigning for for the new leader of the Conservative Party in the next election. Do you think that has one has something to do with the other? Uh, I'm not sure the reason, but but I can say that families have been worried about their kids going back to school for months. And we've been saying that the federal government should play a role in providing providing funding to help provinces make sure schools are safer. The premier here in Ontario, Premier Ford, has not put a plan together that's not based on science to make sure kids are safe. Parents are still worried. And so that's why we've been saying what should happen here is the federal government should make sure the money is tied to making schools safer. And what parents and experts are saying, the major way to make schools safer would be to have smaller classroom sizes. Uh, well, uh, just before airtime, the, the Ontario government did release uh, a bit of a breakdown. It's not too detailed. And it does have $70 million for the temporary hiring of educators as required. It has money for student transportation and for PPE. Uh, is, is that good enough? Well, what we're seeing is a, a provincial government that on the 11th hour, you know, this is just weeks before school is scheduled to resume. And they haven't really put together a clear plan and they're just putting out something that's very basic now when it should be a fully thought out plan. We've heard from school board trustee uh, member Jennifer Story today and she said, we need to make sure that the money that's needed to make sure schools are safer is actually provided to the school board so they can actually start putting it in place. That's really their big concern. And, And we've been saying that at the federal level, that money needs to flow directly tied to schools so that schools can do the work, teachers and the school boards can do the work that they know they need to do to make sure schools are safe. Uh, one of the the uh, problems or uh, concerns that was just raised in my previous segment for, about the hiring of the temporary educators is uh, the question of making sure that they aren't teaching in multiple schools. I mean, we had a, a you know a bad experience with long term care for people working in multiple places. Absolutely. This is a bit of that it goes back again to the plan. The plan should be really clear and laid out in terms of how people are going to be hired and how they're going to be working and what schools so that the plan is one that is actually taking into consideration what we've learned from the past in terms of problems around the spread and how to avoid the spread. That's why it is important. It would have been better for the, the federal government to have put out this this money months ago when we've been asking, when parents have been asking and why the the provincial government needs to have a plan and needs to have that a lot sooner so that these types of considerations can be put into place. Uh, turning to uh, other things, uh, the Conservative Party just elected a new leader a couple of days ago. Uh, what's your take on Aaron O'Toole? Well, what I've said about the, the Conservative leadership is that no matter who the leader is, what we've seen from Conservatives is a, it's a clear pattern where they believe the path forward is to cut the programs that people rely on. And with Aaron O'Toole in particular, Prime Minister Harper massively cut healthcare, and we're in a pandemic and we're hurting because of those cuts. At the Around the table, the cabinet table, when that decision was made, Aaron O'Toole was a, Aaron O'Toole was a minister. So he was there in support of the decision to cut healthcare funding, a decision that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did not reverse. Those same cuts continued, and we're in a pandemic faced with some serious healthcare shortages. 
and lack of access. And that's directly a result of the cuts brought in by Prime Minister Harper with Minister O'Toole at the table and Prime Minister Trudeau that continue those cuts. So that's not the response I think Canadians want to see. They want to see investments in healthcare and investments in programs to help people out. Um, he was elected with the help of the socially conservative conservatives, but in his first speech, he came out yesterday and said uh, he's not, he's pro-choice, uh, supports LGBT rights and all of that. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I think that's something that, that Canadians expect. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians strongly believe women have the right to choose, rightly so, and they believe that people should be respected and have rights for who they are, which includes the LGBTQ community. So I think those are the starting points. But again, I point to we're in a pandemic which requires uh, more thought around how we can help people out, and that's where the Conservatives and their approach is not going to be the right approach for Canadians. They need to, people need help. They, they want to know that their healthcare system is there and it's well-funded and it can respond to the needs that, that might increase at any moment given the pandemic. That's where people want to see commitments and that's not what the Conservatives have shown to, to believe in and that's not what um, Aaron O'Toole himself has shown in the past. Um, they, they've cut services that people need. Well, in terms of the help that people are getting for the pandemic, uh, they uh, seem to be on board with that, though uh, they do want certain limits. And it was the Conservatives who, uh, you know, uh, unve- they they found a, a big power grab in the first Liberal bill. So um, with that, I, I think it shows a, a disconnect. You know, when people were worried about whether or not uh, they would get uh, SERP or whether or not they would have financial supports or whether or not uh, seniors or students, I mean, those are the people that were being missed out. And and really, there's not a single thing that the Conservatives can point to that they fought for that really helped people out in their day-to-day lives. Uh, but, but differently, as New Democrats, we fought every single step of the way in this pandemic to help people out, whether it's help to seniors, help to people living with disabilities, students, increasing the wage subsidy, increasing the amount of support and serve, extending it every step of the way we have fought to to get help to Canadians directly. And we're proud that we've been able to win. Uh, there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. The recovery needs to be one where we create jobs in Canada and we're going to continue to fight for our people. Uh, but given that you're supporting the government, how do you differentiate yourself? And uh, what do you think about the prospect of a fall election? Do you think that's something that might happen? Well, with with the decision around what should happen moving forward, you know, our focus is not on whether we should have an election or not. Our focus is on how do we get help to people in a pandemic? So given the crisis, given the challenges, our focus has always been throughout this pandemic and even now, how can we make sure people get the help they need? And if the Liberal government continues to fall down a path where they're just helping themselves and infighting and it hurts people, we'll look at all options. But right now our focus is how can we continue to fight for people? And throughout this pandemic, it is the work that we've done as a team, as New Democrats, we have fought to make the response uh, a more compassionate and inclusive response. The difference between us and the Liberals is the Liberals are willing to leave people behind. And we fought to include people. We fought to include students and seniors, people living with disabilities. All of those gains were things that we fought for. And we were able to have the Liberals support us in putting those forward. So if we can continue to get those wins for people, we're going to continue to do that.
Uh, the word is that the NDP just can't afford another election. Well, the reality is, is we've uh, shown in the past that we have successfully mounted elections with far less resources than the Liberals and the Conservatives, and we're ready to do it again. The difference between us and Conservatives or Liberals is that we're not trying to play games around, is it in our best interest to go to an election? Our focus is, what's in the best interest of people? And I don't think it's responsible to plunge the country into an election when people are worried about their their support under CERB and CERB ending they need to know that there's going to be changes to EI that cover all workers. We need to know that there's going to be access to paid sick leave. We need to know that kids are going to be safe when they go to school. So those are the things that need to happen. And uh, an election would mean that there would be no help to people. And none of these changes would happen for eight weeks, maybe even longer. That's something that people cannot handle. Uh- in terms of the we scandal, most people think that there's more to come out on that, and mm-hmm. uh, it has really caused a drop in approval for Justin Trudeau and his party. Where are you on that? Yeah, I think that what the, the scandal has shown is that uh, a pattern of behavior where two things are happening. One is that the Liberal government seems to jump to help out themselves and to enrich themselves, and that's what the, the we scandal seems like. And on top of that, it's an example where the government, without any need, seems to be outsourcing or privatizing services that can be delivered very well by our public service. And our public service testified in the committee saying that we could have delivered this program and it would have cost Canadians $40 million less. Uh, Again, with the potential scandal that's emerging around the rent subsidy program that the Liberal government also wanted to offload to another company, that's another program that could have been administered by our own public service. So there's a pattern here where the Liberal government's giving contracts to do things that our own public service can do to their close friends. And that, to me, is very troubling. People expect the government to work for them. And when the Liberals are so caught up helping themselves, people end up hurting. So I guess the question is, you know, um, what I keep hearing is that, yes, it's terrible, uh, but it's not enough to bring the government down, certainly not in the midst of this. We saw a poll this week where a majority of people thought the Liberals are best positioned to lead the economy out of a pandemic. But when do these ethics breaches start to outweigh that? Well, we, we are watching that very closely because the, the focus for us is, you know, looking at the timing around how we can get help to people and is it better uh, for people for us to continue to fight and get them win or is it a time for, for us to go to an election? And, and really, our focus is getting help to people and we've been able to get help to keep people by forcing uh, and fighting for changes. And those changes, we've been successful. So as long as we can continue to get those wins for people and fight and get those changes done, that's going to be our our number one goal. As soon as that's that's no longer possible, or if it seems really clear that the Liberal government's not willing to um, stop focusing on themselves and and stop doing things that that distract from the needs of people, then we'll look at that uh, again closely. We're watching this, but our focus has got to be when there's a second wave potentially coming and there's so much help that people need, our goal is how do we get help to people? Um, I think that most, I don't, I don't know that people are giving the NDP credit for that. Um, it seems that the government is, is taking the credit and, and there's a feeling that really they're, they're moving more towards the left and they want to take this opportunity to expand 
the social safety net in, in a direction, you know, that we would have expected more from the NDP? Well, we can say with lots of uh, credibility and, and proof that we have fought for each and every one of those changes, and they would not have happened. Uh, the Liberal government was not going to do it until we fought for it. And so really what's happened is the response to COVID-19 has included more people because of us, and, and we can show that. And I'm hoping that at the end of the day, Canadians know that no matter what happens, they can count on me as leader and us as New Democrats to fight for them. We are just focused with laser-like precision around what is going to be in the best interest of people, what do they need, and how can we fight to get it. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I hope we'll talk again soon. Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.